Hey, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to Colossians? It's in the New Testament, quite a ways in. The book of Colossians, we'll be looking at chapter 3, um, starting in verse 16. We'll just be looking at a couple of verses this morning. If you're new, if you haven't been around much this fall or at all, uh, we're doing a series called One Anothering, where we're taking a close look at these one another passages in the New Testament and discovering what they have to say about being the church. And so you're familiar, if you've been a part of church for a while, that when you rub shoulders with certain other people, they will say that they have no time for the church or they, they, they don't see the necessity for the church or and, and, and as you start to talk about some of those things they tend to be because well you're hypocrites or because the church doesn't make a difference or because you know of this person or that thing that happened to me at church and on and on they go and and those are valid and those are their experiences of church so we recognize a couple of things going on we recognize we recognize that the church is really the gathered people of Jesus gathered in the name of Jesus, gathered under Jesus, and yet also we're a bunch of sinners gathering. And when that happens, it's not simple, it's not always smooth. Sometimes it gets a little complicated. And so that was going on in the early church, and that continues to go on today. So one of the things that's really important is for us to look at, okay, well, what does it mean to be the church? And we've been discovering, and it's not always easy to discover this thing, what it looks like to really be church. It means that we love one another and it goes from there and so it's it's this fact that yes we're sinners gathered but we're also gathered as sinners saved sinners saved by grace we're gathered around the gospel we're gathered together for those reasons and we give ourselves to loving as christ has loved us and we give ourselves to these things so as we carry on in the series we're going to look at teaching and admonishing one another this morning so if you have a Bible, let's read it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, it'll be up on the screen as well. Here's what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So those are the verses we're going to look at this morning. If you have a bulletin, um, it might look a little bit different than it usually does. Um, this isn't an exercise where you draw your favorite pastor's face in the middle and use it as a target later at home. It kind of looks like that. Let's think less target. Let's think a little more concentric circles, right? You throw, you throw a rock into the lake and what happens? This, there's this ripple of circles, right, the, that kind of go out. And so we're going to kind of have four main points this morning from the text. And they're like these ripples that kind of work their way out from the splash. And so if you want to write right in the middle, that first where that rock lands in the lake, that significant kind of plunge there, that word is gospel. So we'll start there and we'll work our way out. There will be a new word for every line. It's kind of fun, hey? All right. No, trying to keep it trying to keep it interesting for you. So there you go. Um, starting with the gospel, well, where does this come from? We'll look at the first verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's the word of Christ? Is it all the red letters in your Bible? Is it like Jesus' words? Or is it, uh, what is it? it? Like what is the word of Christ? Is it the whole Bible? Well, the word of Christ, the word is logos. And Jesus was the word. In John chapter 1, that same word comes up. For in the beginning was the word, was logos. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let the Word, let the Logos of Christ dwell in you richly. Everything to do with Jesus, really the content of what is preached about the good news of Jesus' way of salvation, it's the Gospel. The Word of Christ is the message that proclaims Jesus. And, and so we're instructed here, let the Word of Christ, let the Gospel, dwell in you richly. So, we use the word gospel around here a lot. If you're new to church, you might not know the full description of what we're talking about. But let me just tell you the gospel here again. Let me tell you the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, and it's really the heart of our faith. The gospel is this. God is a glorious, he's all glorious, all righteous, all holy, and all just. And God created us for his glory. Now, all people have sinned by not living for the glory of God, but preferring other things above God and therefore dishonoring God. And we are by nature rebellious, everyone on the planet. And we can't change ourselves without divine help. Therefore, we are all under the just and holy wrath of God and will all perish eternally if we cannot be saved from his wrath because of our willful rejection of him. We reject him in his glory. We have done that and we are all sinners. But God in his mercy has sent Jesus, his son, into the world to bear the sins and endure the wrath for everyone who believes in him. Faith in Jesus alone unites us with Christ so that his death counts for us and his spotless record can be ours. It's imputed righteousness if you want to get really theological. So no matter how terrible your background has been, no matter where you come from, no matter what your status, everyone who believes in Jesus, who receives him as Savior and Lord, that's as your rescuer and your master, everyone who turns to Jesus as their treasure will be saved and have eternal life. So the call is in the gospel to turn from your sins, give up all reliance on self, all attempts of trying to attain salvation on your own, and give your life to Jesus. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about that story, this story of God creating us for his glory, that we have actually been rebellious and not worshipped him as we should. We have sinned against him. And yet he makes a way for us to be made right with him so that we don't receive his just, the just penalty of wrath from a holy God, but we receive grace instead. That's where the cross comes in, and that's Jesus. So as we talk about um, the gospel, that's the, really the heart of it. That's the, the gospel story. That's the word of Jesus that can save us, that saves sinners. That's, we need to, and then this is what it says. So let the word of Christ, that's the gospel, let that... Dwell in you richly. I love that phrase. The word of Christ, the gospel, is to dwell. It's to take up residence in us. No? Let the word of Christ, let the gospel, dwell in you richly. It is to dwell in us. So I, I think of that individually, and it totally makes sense, and it's totally on point, this sense of that the gospel should dwell in our hearts, be on our, our minds and our hearts, that it should dwell within us and, 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 and kind of... We live out of that, yes, but we also need to recognize a more community context. So this letter by the Apostle Paul was written to a church in a little city called Colossae. 
It's written to the Colossians, and they received this letter from the Apostle Paul. And he writes them, the church there, and says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think what he's, what he's more fully saying is that, that the gospel is to take up permanent residence among us. It should be at the center of our, our church's activities and our worship. And it should dwell in that central space richly, our deep focus. It should be our deep focus because it's what has transforming power in the lives of the individuals in the church and our community as a church. So it really in, in this first little bit, if I can summarize so far, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, let the gospel be the center of everything you do when you gather. It's really like we together are a one song band. It's essentially that we are a band with one song. And every time we get together and play in the band, it's the same song and the song's called the gospel. And that's just what we do. That's our jam. That's our song. We, we, we sing that one every time. We're not, we're, not, we're not adding any other tracks because we think that we got it down. We got this one and it's our focus. We're like a band and our song is the gospel. It may get tiring to some, but it's, for us, we never move on beyond the gospel. So, if we're a one-song band, here's what gets really tricky, is that 2 Timothy 4 comes along, and Paul warns his protege Timothy, this young pastor in the church of Ephesus, and says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they've heard the one song a lot, and, and they're like, Ugh. they have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What he's saying is that on the one hand, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, that we believe in the gospel. It's the centerpiece of our gatherings. It's the centerpiece of our lives. When we gather, it's around that. We have Jesus in common, and believe me, it's enough. But some will come who will say, let's move beyond that. Well, I like the way this sounds over here or that sounds over here. They start to twist the truth, pervert the truth, move on to other things, start to add to it. We see this happen in the scriptures. We hear this happen around us. And people start to say, doesn't that get old? Doesn't the whole gospel message get old? Isn't there more? Isn't there something different? Well, it's been said that the gospel isn't simply the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z. And I think we need, or Z, it's, it rhymes better with C. In other words, once God rescues sinners, his plan isn't to take them beyond the gospel. Like that's the entry point. Like, like, like that, that, that in Christianity that the gospel is just sort of the ladder into the pool. And once you, you climb down the gospel ladder, then you're into the pool of church and Christianity and it's just much bigger and there's much more there. It, the reality is that it's A through Z, which means, yes, you take the gospel to get into the pool through the ladder, but once you get into the pool, you realize that the gospel's there too. That, that it's the A through Z, not just the A, B, C, A through Z. The gospel is, here's the thing about the gospel, it's simple enough for a child to grasp and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore and explore and explore. And I love that about the gospel. So what you might notice in this series we're doing, of one anothering, is that we're talking about Christian growth. We're talking about 
being a Christian community. And so we're talking about loving one another and praying for one another, and forgiving one another, confessing sin to one another. But as we do that, we're not simply just telling you to go and do this thing. Now add this thing. But everything is always rooted in the gospel. We are to love one another, not just in a flippant way or in a surfacey way, but love with the kind of love that Jesus has pursued each one of us with, with gospel love. So we are to love like Christ loves us. So that's staggering. And so that's the way that we work around here. We believe that it's the A through Z. We believe that the gospel is simple enough for a child to grasp and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. The gospel isn't simply the entry point for faith. It's, it's everything. It, we're all about it. So at Central, you will find us to be a place that preaches Christ and him crucified. And it will be a stumbling block for many. Or many will want to move past it. They'll want to move beyond it. But that's our song. All four verses are the gospel. It's the gospel. And that's the way we roll. Now, if you would like to get your pen out, we're going to go circle number two. Just in that second circle, write discipleship. Because here's what the text continues to say. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, this is really, um, really the, the, the centerpiece of, in a lot of ways, discipleship. Because Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then he describes how you do that. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So proclaiming the gospel to people who don't know it. They come to saving faith. Well, what's the next step? Is baptism. People, if you want to disciple people, if you want to be a disciple, you believe you get baptized, but it doesn't end there. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded. So to make disciples is to point people to, to the gospel. People come to Christ, people get baptized, and then we, the discipleship carries on. And this is the primary way that discipleship takes place is that we continue to teach Everything that Christ has commanded, the word of Christ, it is to dwell among us richly, teaching to observe all that Christ commanded. See, Jesus' goal is, is actually, if you, look, if you have a Bible, flip to Colossians 1, you'll see in verse 22 and 23 that Jesus' goal is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. The goal of Jesus is to do that. The cross does that, that we are justified, made, we are made right, God, when he looks at us, once you've given your life to Christ, he, he doesn't see all our blotted sinful record. He sees Christ's spotless record. That's justification. And his goal is, through saving faith, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. He Not only to justify us, but to sanctify us, to grow us in our knowledge, to grow us in our faith. And present us that way in verse 23 of chapter 1. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Staying focused on the gospel, learning, growing in faith. In fact, this is also the Apostle Paul's same goal. He says in verse 28 of chapter 1 that it's him, it's Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that he may present everyone mature in Christ. 
for this I toil, Paul says. He toils to proclaim, to warn, to teach in wisdom the gospel to those who would hear, to those who would grow. And so discipleship is this teaching that is really important. So our verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. This is why the teaching component, the preaching in our services is the key component. We have this emphasis on the gospel and preaching the word here. Because we believe that this is how people will grow up in the faith and come to maturity. So I acknowledge not everyone here is a mature believer. Some of you have just given your life to Jesus this year. And we praise God for that. Some of you have given your life to Jesus in recent years and and feel very much new in the faith and are learning and discovering and growing. But some of you have been believers, some of us, for a long time, but still actually lack maturity. So we've hung around for a long time, but we have not been maturing, growing, stable, steadfast, focused on the gospel with growth. We have not matured. Hebrews 5.12 warns about this. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's saying, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. This is a word to a bunch of grown-up Christians who should, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, be able to teach by now. But you, in fact, still need to be shown the basic principles of the faith. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. He's saying this to grown-ups. You're a bunch of kids in the gospel, but you should be teachers by now. Wow. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My friends, are you maturing in the faith? Are you growing in the faith more than 45 minutes at a, t- a week listening to your preacher? Are you growing in your knowledge of the gospel? Are you growing in how it works itself out? We have been studying as a staff um, a book by Jeff Vanderstelt called Saturate, really uh, bringing uh, discipleship into the everyday stuff of life is sort of his tagline. And it's a really helpful book for us because, because we're discussing this as a staff and, and just discovering more and more sort of how, okay, we, we, we learn the gospel, we, 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 we grow in our knowledge, but, but, but how does it work itself out when I, when I leave the church building? How does it work itself out in secular work? How does it work itself out at school? How does it work itself out with my neighbors? How does it work itself out in the midst of difficulty, right? What, how does the gospel apply to everything. And, and this is something that every one of us needs to be growing in. And so Jeff Vanderstelt gives an example of, a, of an older man named Ray. Jeff uh, and his, his wife were planting a church in Tacoma, Washington. I think they were in their late 20s at the time, maybe their early 30s. And they were starting to rally around a core group who were all young. And so Jeff thought it would be really great if Ray and his wife came along because they were in like their late 50s. And we need some people who aren't just, you know, young and totally idealistic and naive or whatever. So let's get, you know, some people with... So he, he started hanging out with Ray and, and discipling Ray. And what he, here's what he discovered about Ray. Ray, um, um, Ray realized, or Jeff realized about Ray that no one had ever trained Ray to feed himself and others with the word. 
And so Ray had this, this sense, this belief that Jeff ought to feed him as his pastor. Just feed me. You are the source of my feeding. Sole source. You ought to feed me. And so Jeff realized that no one had ever trained Ray to feed himself and others in the word of God, to make disciples by teaching others. So, so Jeff emphasized that there's a big difference between just reading the Bible and obeying it. And that being able to teach others to read it and obey it is another key difference. There's a difference between simply sort of doing my devos, reading one verse of the Psalms, and actually applying the text of Scripture to my life, obeying it, and actually going to someone else, teaching it and applying it with them. There's a very big divide and difference between simply reading a couple verses and sinking it into our, our heads and our hearts and working it out. So Jeff goes on to say, I encouraged Ray to start with a very basic practice. I suggested that he read his Bible every day, asking God's Spirit to guide him into the meaning of what he read and inviting the Spirit to lead him in what he should do. So what, what Jeff was encouraging Ray to do was not simply read a, text, read a few verses out of context and say, what does this mean to me, Holy Spirit? He would say, study the Bible well, study it well, study context, see what the verses before and after are saying, see it in its context, learn what the Bible is saying, and then ask the Holy Spirit how that application in that text is to apply to my life, what he should do. He goes on to say, I instructed Ray to write down what he learned as he read the Bible and what God's Spirit told him to do in response to what God's Word said. I reminded him that the same Spirit who inspired the writing of God's Word was also with him to enable him to understand it and apply it. Listen to God's Spirit through God's Word, I told him. I wanted him to obey the Spirit and then teach someone else what he'd learned. Read, listen, and obey. Then pass it on. To help him grasp what I was suggesting, I took Ray to the account of Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4. I showed him that Jesus, responding to his disciples' concern that he, didn't, that he hadn't eaten anything, told them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Then I promised him that, I would, that, that if he would listen and obey what the Spirit led him to do, he would be better fed than through any sermon he had ever heard. I don't know if I should be telling you that, but it's true. I'll never forget his response. Well, I don't know if I agree with you, but I'll try it for a week. If it doesn't work, remember, it's your job to feed me. When Ray came back to me in a week, he was amazed. He told me he'd never had a better week. He had learned. He had listened to the Spirit. And he had done what the Spirit had told him to do. As a result, he had discovered that partnership with Jesus in everyday life is extremely fulfilling. He was eating a full course meal served up by God's Spirit every single day. Over the next year, we helped Ray join Jesus on his mission to our city in the everyday stuff of life, and eventually Ray went from being a Sunday server and observer to a disciple of men coming out of homelessness and addiction. He also started pouring his life into young men who lacked fathers to show them what God the Father is like. He learned to feed himself and then began to feed others. Here's a man who simply re relied on his preacher to feed him and went away and relied on that for the week. Jeff showed him 
to spend time in the word every day, let the Holy Spirit apply it to his life, and to go and tell someone else what he had learned. And you know what happened is he no longer relied on Jeff once a week to teach him and feed him, but he fed himself in the word of God and went about discipling others and became a mighty man in their church and in their community, having an impact with people with addictions, having an impact with young men who needed good father figures. This man's life was absolutely transformed because he believed that discipleship mattered, that he should not only be taught but he should teach and so we have this beautiful privilege at central which is that we are multi-generational but if we only cloister in our age groups i'm not saying that we do but if we only cloister in our age groups we are not utilizing a gift that god has given us in our gray hair our no hair our blonde hair our brown hair right we don't we don't utilize it we have great opportunity to both teach and be taught Simply as the young or the older teaching the younger, the more mature in the faith teaching those who are infants in the faith. We have such opportunity. I tell you this story because it's an older man who felt reliant on his pastor alone to feed him spiritually. Instead, his pastor showed him how to feed himself and feed others. Young, old, God wants you to be a part of his work of making disciples. Teaching others is part of following Jesus. I believe that we grow best as we help one another grow. I grow the most when I step out in faith, aim to teach. People start asking questions like, that's a great question. (laughs) That is a hard question you're asking over there. Back I go to God's word, to studying, to relying on him, saying, God, help me with this difficult question. Because I'm aiming to serve others and teach others, it's challenging me and spurring my growth on so much more than if I was just off on my own, doing a little devo, trying to apply it a little bit to me and doing nothing else with it. Do you see the difference? Do you see what discipleship looks like when we both want to be discipled, growing in the word, having teachers teach us, and also finding people who are not as far along as us in the journey of faith and and talking faith with them and pointing things out to them and teaching them, listening to their questions, saying, that's a hard one, learning about it, growing. See, we grow so much more. We grow best as we help one another grow. This is one of the beauties of being the church together. We're meant to live this faith together. We spur one another on in the faith and in our growth by doing so. There's more joy in helping others than holy self-helping self. So this says that we should teach one another, and that's really the key part of discipleship after conversion and baptism, is that we teach all that Christ has commanded. That's the heart of discipleship. That's what we're doing. And we all get to be a part of that teaching and being taught. It says teach, and it also says admonish one another in all wisdom. To admonish is to instruct, uh, warn. It even has a sense of reprimand in it, so there's warning and reprimand and admonishing. To warn or counsel in in terms of someone's behavior, so it's kind of practical. Hey, I'm seeing this. And it's no wonder that the text says, admonish in all wisdom. Right? Because when you you go up to somebody and say, um, just got to reprimand you here a little bit, seeing some stuff. That's that's just dangerous ground. It's tricky. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to do it. We are supposed to do it. But we need to hear that we are to teach and admonish with wisdom. It's it's very Ephesians 4.15 of speaking the truth in love. We always need to hold those two in the balance, truth and love. So we admonish out of love for God 
commitment to one another, to admonish, to, to, to gently rebuke or to reprimand or to warn, is actually to, to, to be committed and loving to one another. It also has to do with enmity towards sin. We want nothing to do with sin, and so it's for, for the sake of others and ourselves that when we see it appear, we want to, to gouge it out. So love of each other, we have to love each other enough and hate sin enough to rebuke one another. And out of passionate love for God, we do that. So we're not talking about our opinions about what someone around us should do. I don't think you should do that. I don't think you should do that. But it's about the truth. We're talking about the truth. The truth is the word that we hold up for our brothers and sisters in Christ as a mirror so that the word of God may read their hearts and convict and transform their lives. So we don't just spout off opinion. I don't think you should be living that way. You say, hey, the word of God says this, and I'm noticing this. How does that play out for you? That's, a, that's, a, that's a, an admonition. That's a way we admonish. And so it's not like, so there's just this gentleness to it. Love is crucial to admonishment. In fact, in verse 14, so just before the couple of verses we're looking at this morning, it says, and, put, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So in context, we are above all things to love. And we are to love and bind everything together in perfect harmony. So we're to speak, seek love. We're to seek harmony. And so we're to admonish in that context. We need to kind of look at the verses around it and make sure that we're applying all of them. Not just, oh, I get to admonish somebody? Oh, now I can tell that person off in the Lord. It's missing the heart of a passage that's saying multiple important things. And how we admonish is critical. We must take the prior verses into account. Here's some of the things the prior verses say, that we should be forgiving, we should be loving, and we should be a thankful congregation. Please do not admonish anybody before all of those things exist in your heart. If forgiveness, love, gratitude as a congregation, as a, as a person who contributes in this place, if those things aren't on your heart, please do not go tell someone what they should do better. How we admonish is critical. Now this teaching and admonishing, I think, works itself out in beautiful ways. Titus 2 talks about older women are to teach what is good, training the younger women. That's a beautiful picture. Jill Henderson, who, who, um, who just facilitates a lot of our women's ministry around here, has a real heart for this, that women would train women. They would gather around the word. They would center it on the Bible, but that they would spur each other on, encourage one another. That's really a heartbeat of women's ministry around here. And to be honest with you, I'm in awe of our women's ministry. What they're doing and what they're planning. Um, when I sit down with some of our leaders in women's ministry, they have they have more ideas and plans. Like they they, ha- they could easily fill like a 20-year plan of just growth in women's ministry, and it's beautiful. It's all beautiful. It's all great. It's centered on the gospel. It's centered on the word. It's growing in faith. But women together, younger, older, more mature, less mature being around tables together, ministering to each other. I'm so inspired by what our women are doing in ministry around here. And as we continue in this series, we're seeing how all of these one another commands can be lived out. We're seeing our our men's and women's ministries as opportunities for older and more mature men and women to teach and spur on younger men and women um, in age and faith. We're seeing our friendships with one another being more spiritually deliberate. Um, 
We're seeing our children's ministry volunteering as discipling roles. And we're seeing our life groups as hubs of discipleship activity. And over time, as we teach God's word and the Holy Spirit prompts us to repeat that word to one another in all sorts of contexts, God really does change our lives, our relationships, our church, and our community. But we've always got to know where that first ripple is, right? Where it all starts, where when we throw that rock into the lake, what is starting those concentric circles from flowing outwards? Everything we do is rooted in the gospel, and we teach each other it in any context we can find around here. You will find Central to be a church that's committed to teaching the Bible on Sundays and all throughout the week. Thirdly, third circle, get to add a word, gratitude. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's Paul saying here? Is he saying that in Jesus, life turns into the sound of music? Like we just sort of break out in song, that the hills are alive with the sound of music if we are in Christ? It is like, does life become a Disney movie when, you know, when, when, when the word of Christ dwells in us in such a way, like song just breaks out, like we're hanging out and all of a sudden a song happens. Be kind of cool. I hope it doesn't happen. Um, but look, here's, here's what's happening in this. I think there's a couple things. There's actually a couple uh, interpretations of what this is saying exactly. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Is he saying that in Christ, you know, that we, that, yeah, that there's just sort of this, um, I don't know, everything turns into song? Seems like what he's talking about is a people gathered who have been moved by the grace and mercy of God found in Jesus Christ, that there is gladness of heart in being together. There is a celebration that occurs when we come in weary and worn from the world around us as we have walked with the Lord yet another week. We've leaned into the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience yet another week. We celebrate because the Lord saw us through yet another week by His grace. There's this, we're, we're all relying on the gospel and when we gather there's just this profound gratitude and celebration and overflowing of joy. So teaching and admonishing one another in the gospel produces thankfulness that when we gather, yes, kind of, overflows with song and it resonates to do that together. That's one interpretation of what's going on in this verse, these overflowing songs. Another interpretation is that our songs are a part of the teaching ministry. I think both are true, and I think that's one of the reasons why commentators, scholars have trouble interpreting what this text means exactly, because both seem right. That one is that when we gather, should we not celebrate what Christ has collectively done in our lives? And singing together is a great way of doing that. Also, it can be said that that singing songs is a great part of our teaching ministry. Um, that 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 really, when we sing songs, that it's useful. That that that, that the lyrics we sing are helpful. They both make sense. So, so here we go. So. Um, there's a little bit of differentiation. I don't think we're meant to pick it apart, but when he talks about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, what, what's being said here? Well, psalms are, are, are really singing scripture, primarily the psalms, the psalter, singing the psalms. So that's the psalms component. The, the, church, the early church would gather and sing the psalms. Hymns, hymns were, were, were seen to be more distinctively uh, Christian compositions. In fact, Mary's song, the Magnificat, is an example of, of a hymn. 
A song unto a Lord that has been composed. And thirdly, spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.18 parallels this same language. But spiritual songs are spontaneous songs under immediate inspiration of the Spirit. Um, a parallel passage is Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't fill yourself up with wine, Fill yourself with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So the result of being filled with the Spirit in some ways, just bear with me for a second, in some ways is like the uninhibited singing of those who are drunk. Have you ever been to a sports game or some context where someone has had too much to drink and they are quite passionate? What the scriptures are saying, so bear with me, what the scriptures are saying is don't get drunk on wine and be belligerent. Don't get drunk on wine and not be able to carry yourself. We actually see in orderly worship that God is not a God of disorder, so our, our gatherings shouldn't be disorderly. We shouldn't try to be filled in the spirit in the same way people try to get filled on wine, that we start acting very strange. Um, but what we are to do, what, there is a sense there that these verses are connected, that there's a, there's a different filling. There's this lively and spont- spontaneity that, 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 that somewhat parallels a, a, a drunk singer, but it's not filled on, on booze. It's walking with the Lord, relying on his spirit, the spontaneity and liveliness of charismatic worship. That's the spiritual songs. Remember, for the building up of the body. So we're not to pursue things that seem odd or really uncomfortable for everyone else. We are simply to just overflow with joy in our singing that it ought to look like we believe what we're singing about. So I love this phrasing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the next time someone talks about liking hymns more than choruses or like new songs more than the old hymns, just say, well, I prefer psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So it's the end of it. It's much more biblical to chapter and verse them. But don't rebuke out it. Make sure you have love. All right. it sounded very jabby, didn't it? All right. Songs matter for at least three reasons. Music stirs our affections for Christ in a unique way, doesn't it? Worship in song, it's powerful. I remember many years ago, I went to visit my sister who was attending university in Ontario, and we took a train to Montreal to see U2 play. Such a pastor thing to do, to go see U2. This was long before I was a pastor, but we went and we were in, uh, I don't know, whatever it's called, the, the big, where Montreal Canadiens play. We were in their big arena, U2 were playing, and there was this... Um, we were way up in the nosebleeds and decided, you know, later in the set, let's just go down. Let's just get close. So we did that. And we actually took somebody's seats and he came back. He was smoking weed. And uh, he's like, it's fine. It's fine. And he started just dancing in the aisle. And as Where the Streets Have No Name, a song about heaven came on, this man who was smoking weed, had a strong French accent, it's just very ingrained in my memory, just looked up to the roof and raised his hands straight up with a big grin on his face, and that man was worshiping. <laughs> like, let me tell you, and that U2 song is a worship song. It's a song about heaven, like I don't think any other song about heaven has been written. And here he is with, I shouldn't say that, there's probably some great ones. But I just, I noticed this man, I'm like, I don't know if he gets it, I, maybe. I don't know if he even knows what's being sung, but there was such, for me as a Christian, the Holy Spirit was moving in a way that, oh, or maybe the wafts of his weed, I'm not really sure, but... <laughs> Uh. 
I did say that, yes. Okay. <clears throat> all, that, all that tangent to say, <laughs> music stirs our affections for Christ in a way that's very unique. Music engages people's hearts on an emotional level that's just so profound. I even tweeted about this new Adele song that came out. That she, all she writes about is breakups, really. But there really are, you cannot find more emotively beautiful songs than listening to this young woman sing sad songs of breakup. Like there's just something so emotional about the music. It's stirring. There's just something like, oh, profound in music. When we as Christians who have such reason for praise, when we as Christians put lyrics to songs that are eternal and rich and gospel, we have to understand that music stirs our affections for Christ in a unique and powerful way. There is reason to sing when we gather. For music is beautiful, but the lyrics we put to it are far more beautiful. Singing allows us, too, to minister the word of God to each other corporately. I can preach, you're doing a great job of listening, but when we stand and all sing truth together to conclude, that is powerful. That is powerful. Thirdly, songs are a fantastic avenue of theological training. As as good a preacher I might think on a really good day, (laughs) you're not going to sit at home and repeat a phrase that I said at any point this morning. You're not going to say a paragraph of my sermon, but you know what you might do? You start to vacuum the home or go for a walk this afternoon and you start to hum the lyric of give praise, give praise. Forever God is faithful, forever God is strong. You won't say the phrases of my sermon, but you will sing the truths of our lyrics. So songs are a fantastic, sorry for that solo. (laughs) Songs are a fantastic avenue of theological training. I thought about going to the verse, I stopped. Um, I heard one theologian say, show me your church's songbook, I'll show you their theology. What he's saying by that is because songs stick, we need to be really careful about the songs we sing. They need to be biblical, they need to be truthful, they need to be rich, because we will remember them and they will form our faith. So show me your church's songbook, I'll show you your theology. We try to sing as much of the Bible as we can around here, truths about who God is around here. It's not a, so, so on the flip side, Songs are just songs, and this is saying one other thing here. Songs are just songs, and so he's not just saying, sing, gather and sing, but he's saying with thankfulness in your hearts. That's the piece about gratitude here. The flip side is songs are just songs if they don't engage our hearts. The singing of songs is of no value at all if they do not produce worship. So Isaiah 29, Isaiah the prophet picks up on this and says, this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And if you read on in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet is saying, speaking for God and saying, it's of no value. What's the point? You're bringing no glory to me in your singing of songs. Because I look at the heart, and your hearts are far from me. So here's where the concentric circles work. We throw the rock into the lake, the gospel splashes, and the ripple is discipleship. We teach each other more of the gospel, and we're taught more of the gospel. And you know what happens when we learn more of the gospel? What ought to happen is not just gain head knowledge. That's not our goal. We want to know God more, more about God, so we know him more. And as we know more of who God is, more of the wonder of the gospel, more of the king,
character of Jesus, more of the, the attributes of God, we discover that there is even more reason to be thankful, more reason for gratitude. And so that is the point. Dwelling on teaching one another the wonder of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf ought to produce gratitude that overflows into an exuberant singing and genuine thankfulness in our hearts. When we sing these songs, may we, may we lean into the lyrics and say, oh, that's a truth I can sing. I praise you, God, for that. I praise you, God, for this. We lift our hands in agreement or however we respond. We we engage with the truths that are being spoken and we say, Lord, I'm singing this, but I'm singing it with gratitude in my heart. That is the goal. And when we fixate on the gospel, we teach each other it well, our gratitude, our thankfulness will grow. Lastly, finally, mission. The last circle. Mission. Begins with the gospel. We teach each other more of the gospel. It grows our gratitude and love for Jesus. And it pours over, it ripples over into all of life. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever you say, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In verse 17. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Peace of Christ rule. Word of Christ dwell. Name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in it. Everything in it giving thanks. So to be a follower of Jesus is to be a follower of Jesus in all of life. That's part of the teaching. That's part of the discoveries. We have to see how it fits. How does me going to the late show of James Bond fit? (laughs) How is that all of life or whatever the piece is? But to be a follower of Jesus is to discover more and more is to be a follower of Jesus in all of life. And all of life is to be lived for the glory of God and accomplishing the mission of Jesus. All of life. Many of you work full-time jobs. Not all of you, but many of you work full-time jobs. Or many of you are full-time students. You're pouring a lot of hours into a particular thing. What do you do with that time? Let me tell you, it is gospel time. You do that work to the glory of God. You do that work in Jesus' name. What does that look like? There's a story, it's probably true, it's kind of legend, but there's a story that a shoemaker once asked Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, how he should best live out his faith in his daily profession. What does it mean to be a Christian cobbler, he asked Martin Luther. Luther responded by telling the man what what it did not mean. It did not mean that he should put little crosses on every shoe he made. Instead, a Christian shoemaker should simply focus on making good shoes because by doing so, he fulfills his vocational calling and serves his neighbors. I I, I agree with that to a point. We ought to be the best workers in town, you and I. You know that? I, I truly hope that none of you are slackers at your job, especially if your coworkers know you're a Christian. We ought to go about excelling at our vocation because by simply being a great cobbler, making the best shoes around, we serve our neighbors. By being a tradesman who makes good work. I did that for a little while. 
here and there. I dabbled. And there was really something wonderful about simply stepping back from the structure that you participated in building and going, wow, I made that. And it's the nicest place around, <laughs> you know, or whatever. There's just something, oh, wow, gratifying. Do that work unto the Lord. Everything you do, do it in Jesus' name. May we be the kind of workers that other coworkers are like, I'm so grateful they're on the team because they pick up the slack. They do jobs I don't want to do. <laughs> they serve. They're loving. They're kind. May we do that work to the glory of God. He says, don't put crosses on every shoe. Simply do, make good shoes. I would go further than that. I think your good working will give you license and credibility to speak into their lives. And you bring yourself as a Christian where the gospel dwells in you into that environment. So here you are, the best worker, the most committed student and helpful classmate or whatever it is. And you're Christian and you love Jesus and you just keep applying the gospel to the scenarios that come about. And we're Christians in it. See, we will scatter. You will go places this week. I won't go. I have neighbors that you don't have. We will scatter, not having gotten our gospel fixed for the week right here, right now, but sent out on mission for the whole week to work unto the Lord, to serve and to be witnesses of the gospel in all of life. Madeline Langle said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Let, let's show the light of the gospel that's changed our lives wherever we go this week, for there is nothing more compelling than that. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it's simple enough that right now in other parts of this building, our, our young children are being taught the simple gospel message and they can believe it and receive it. And that's staggering. And in this room, we can preach all year. We can have sermons all year and we're just scratching the surface of the wonder of what there is to explore in the gospel. That just blows my mind. It is both the kiddie pool and the vast ocean. May we be a church that never move beyond the gospel but are satisfied in it. Apply it to our lives and to others' lives around us. Teach it to those around us for we long to see them grow along with us. And Lord, as we know you more, may we be a grateful people, recognizing more and more and more what you've done in our lives. And lastly, Lord, would that just simply flow into everywhere we go? May we be a missional people. I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.